Good evening and uh, welcome to um, the last in this series of Wilson Lectures. I'm delighted that Alan Ryan is here tonight to be the grand finale uh, for four weeks of our Wilson Lectures, each one uh, of which has been on the influence of one remarkable mind on another. Christopher Ricks on Empson, Richard Dawkins on Darwin, Mary Beard on Jane Harrison, and now Alan Ryan on Isaiah Berlin, just over a week before we mark the centenary of Isaiah Berlin on June the 6th. No speaker could be more satisfactory or more apposite for us to have here to talk on this subject. For one thing, Alan Ryan is one of the most influential and revealing interpreters of Isaiah Berlin, from the Feshrift that he edited for him in 1979, The Idea of Freedom, to the vivid impressions he's contributed to Henry Hardy's forthcoming anthology, The Book of Isaiah. For another, he's a match for Isaiah Berlin in many ways. In his life's energetic professional negotiation between American and English academe, in the high-powered velocity and quick-silver cleverness of his talk, and in his dazzling range of achievements in political philosophy, whether as the analyst of Mill, Russell, and Dewey, the the challengingly independent commentator on higher education, or the inexhaustible, versatile, and always telling reviewer and essayist for the New York Review of Books and many other intellectual outlets. Isaiah Berlin's inspirational founding leadership of Wilson, to which all of us here are so indebted, is also paralleled by Alan Ryan's dedicated service as the now outgoing warden of New College, where I have witnessed his powers of rhetorical persuasion, his steely resolve occasionally emerging from his velvet glove, his generous interest in the students, his often highly dangerous and risky choice of jokes, and above all, his style. Alan is a consummate stylist in life and in writing, and I want to give you two short examples to whet your appetite of what I consider to be his distinctive, eloquent, excellent prose. One is Alan Ryan talking about mill and choice in a 2006 introduction to On Liberty, Mill's essay On Liberty. Ryan says this, what he wants us to avoid is a mechanical vision. Men are not machines and life is not to be led in a mechanical fashion. Human beings are more like trees growing organically and in their own fashion and not to be crimped into one pattern only. In a telling simile, he observes that a man can hardly find a jacket to fit him unless he has a warehouse full to choose from. So how can we be expected to choose our whole pattern of life unless we have a comparable range of choices? This is, however, Alan Ryan goes on, not quite the rhetorical question that Mill supposed it to be. We should at least remind ourselves that Pascal remarked that all the troubles of the world stem from the fact that we cannot sit quietly in a room. Since Mill's day, a substantial literature has grown up to argue that choice is not so obviously a good thing that more is always better. To revert to Mill's analogy of a warehouse full of jackets, critics have replied that once you have more than half a dozen in your size to choose from, you become baffled rather than liberated. Mill would have been unmoved. For him, the crucial issue is not so much whether you choose something different, but whether, if you wish to, you can look for something different. The man who stays in his room of his own free choice poses no problem for Mill's argument. The man who can go nowhere else is a prisoner. 
The other much shorter example is Alan Rahn in 1995, summing up the life and work of John Dewey, American pragmatist, educationalist, secular socialist, and public intellectual. Ryan says this, It was his ability to infuse the here and now with a kind of transcendent glow that overcame the denseness and awkwardness of his prose and the vagueness of his message and secured such widespread conviction. He will remain for the foreseeable future a rich source of intellectual nourishment for anyone not absolutely locked within the anxieties of his or her own heart and not absolutely despondent about the prospects of the modern world. That mixture of cool-headed argumentativeness, engaged human interest, an eye for the weak spots even in people he admires, is characteristic of Alan Ryan's work, I think, which is poised, interestingly, between biography, philosophy, and political theory. I don't want to steal the thunder from the about-to-be-published book of Isaiah, but Alan Ryan's conversation there about Berlin is particularly eloquent about him, not as a historian of ideas, but as a writer brilliant at what Alan Ryan calls a form of biographical reenactment. By this he means a non-systematic recapturing of personality, of a cast of mind, of an argumentative mode. That's what Alan Ryan does himself, I think, with the great minds and lives that he's written about. And that's what I hope he will do for us now with Isaiah Berlin. So please make him very welcome. I won't start with the usual joke that Isaiah started with, stare down the length of North schools. Who can't hear me? If you can't hear me, raise your hand. No, won't do. Will somebody sitting next to anybody who obviously can't hear me raise his hand? We, we, we had a check, but I have forgotten to turn it on. The title is deliberately ambiguous, and it has to be preceded by a disclaimer. I was a good friend of Isaiah Berlin, but I don't want to pass myself off as a uniquely close friend. There are many reasons why our friendship was good but not terribly close. None of them have to do with the affection in which he and I held each other. The stage of my life where I might have become a much closer friend, I went to America for nine years, an act that Isaiah himself described, and he meant it unkindly, as committing emigration. Before that, I was too young, too diffident, and much too anxious not to be confused with the hordes of pushy graduates who made much more of their acquaintance with him than I thought was decent. I was desperate not to seem to be sucking up. Of course, to my pains, I was reproached for not making more effort to see more of him, and of course, I thought he was wonderful. 
He was generous, musing, flamboyant, and at the same time vastly more vulnerable to other people's opinions than you could ever have guessed from the effervescent first impressions. He very much needed not just to be liked, but to be thought well of. I said he was wonderful, and he was. He was not perfect. None of us is, and he was imperfect in the usual ways. The need to be liked would often lead him to tell six different persons that they were his favourite candidate for some post or other when he was busily trying to engineer a seventh into the job. The need to keep in with friends who didn't see eye to eye with each other often led him to say malicious things behind their backs. If you want some evidence, try comparing the tribute that Noel Annan paid Berlin at the memorial service at the West London Synagogue with what Berlin said about Annan in the latest volume of letters that Henry Hardy has just published. He liked conspiring to put not entirely suitable people into chairs in subjects remote from his own. He would have loved the recent fracas over the professorship of poetry, and when you get bored in 20 minutes' time, you might just like to rehearse in your minds the conversation taking place in those deck chairs in the Elysian fields between Isaiah, Maurice Bower, and John Sparrow. And he could suffer from the social and intellectual snobbery if that was what it was, I'm not sure it was, that was on endemic in Oxford in the 1950s. Offered the wardenship of Nuffield in 1953, he said, as one does, that the great merit of Nuffield is its proximity to the railway station. Then he gleefully quoted, also in this volume of letters, John Sparrow's response to this observation that since the prison was even nearer, why didn't he apply for the governorship? <laughs> if you think that he was not critical about all souls, he also said later, and said more than once, that the intellectual discussion you could get at lunchtime at Univ, in the company of Peter Strawson, Herbert Hart and Ronnie Dworkin, cast a pretty shaming light on intellectual life in all souls. It has to be said that his judgment wasn't always good. His lukewarm recommendation of Herbert Hart for a fellowship at New College was not only unkind, but it was hopelessly wrong about how good Herbert Hart would turn out to be. And his judgment that Peter Strawson's individuals was, and I quote, provincial, leaves anyone who knows any philosophy wide-eyed and open-mouthed. So this lecture is very much a personal impression, not particularly or deeply intimate. It's personal in two ways. I want to try to convey something of what I got out of his work in the hope that it will strike a chord with those who know the work or knew Berlin well, and that it might induce those who don't know the work to give themselves a treat by going and reading it. Secondly, I want to do a bit of what I hope is genuine intellectual work myself, 
and to explain, or at least, if not to explain, at least to explore, why the way that Berlin wrote, that torrential prose, that constant introduction to the reader of fascinating, wild characters, his own obsession with the personalities of the thinkers he wrote about, why that was part and parcel of what he was trying to tell his readers and hearers about politics, and particularly about the politics of the 20th century. It was to be thoroughly vulgar, and with apologies to his shade, political theory as a form of psychodrama, and what I hope to persuade you is that it was all the better for it. What provokes this undertaking is very simple. Berlin was for almost a decade the Chichely Professor of Political Thought. Both admirers and critics often said that they weren't entirely sure what it was that Berlin thought he was professing. What had he done when, as he often said, he had abandoned philosophy for the history of ideas? Had he really abandoned philosophy? Did he really practice the history of ideas? If the answer to both questions is, well, not exactly, then what was going on? I want to say a bit about the extraordinarily engaging way in which he wrote about the heroes of political theory, Machiavelli or Marx or Mill, particularly the Russians, and what we should think about the fact that he wrote about them in exactly the same way he wrote about Churchill or Weizmann, the political heroes of the day. The volume that collects his éloge is called Personal Impressions. But aside from the philosophical volume, quite rightly called Concepts and Categories, you could actually have put that title on every single volume of the essays. What he produced was very personal impressions. Now, when asked why he'd abandoned the philosophy he'd done before the war, Berlin had a stock response. I mean, the question was endlessly asked, so a stock response was exactly what it should get. The punchline was that philosophy, he thought, did not seem to make progress, that he wanted to know more at the end of his life than at the beginning. When young, he'd been excited by philosophy. He was a contemporary of some astonishingly clever young philosophers, Eyre, Hampshire, Austin among them. As a boy at St Paul's, he'd had the usual classical education, but although he was a perfectly competent linguist, he didn't want to do classical mods, but took greats in three years and PPE finals the year after. That was the philosopher's track. Then became, of course, the first Jew to be elected as a prize fellow of all souls, resulting in congratulations and invitations to lunch from the chief rabbi and Lord Rothschild, and a certain froideur towards the fellows of all souls on the part of the Bishop of Worcester. He became one of the group of young philosophers who met in All Souls for the rest of the decade and rethought their subject from top 
to bottom. To say he was then a very good philosopher is an understatement. He was one of the first critics to see the holes in the constructivist project to which logical positivism was devoted and to point out the sheer implausibility of the project to which Freddie Eyre was committed all his life, that of reducing physical objects to logical constructions out of sense data and, once you've got that out of the way, reducing ourselves to logical constructions out of our experiences. But before he published his first articles in philosophy, he'd actually found his métier. He accepted a commission from Gilbert Murray to write a short book on Karl Marx for the Home University Library. Needless to say, it was delivered very, very late. He had agonies writing it, and the agonies are entirely invisible in the finished object. In fact, how he ever managed to write his papers in greats, PPE finals, or the All Souls exam, has always been to me a complete mystery. He had no Pat Nutekin to dictate to, and his mode of composition in later life was not, on the face of it, a recipe for success in the standard Oxford examination that wanted four sharp answers in three hours flat consisted later, reading widely, taking copious notes, scribbling drafts, writing at length, then phoning his friends to say that he had totally despaired of finding anything to say or finding any way of stopping if he had found anything to say. I was on the receiving end of one of these when I was staying in the house of Herbert Hart and Berlin was about to go to Washington to give the Mellon lectures. Phone rings, there's Isaiah. Where's Herbert? Coming back in half an hour. Oh, it's Alan. Yes, I see. It's impossible. Impossible. I've always known I was second rate. This is the demonstration. What did he want? 600 pages of notes and first lecture not yet written. You know what it's like? What's it like? All those grand ladies in Washington in the audience, front rows, the first week, ladies and gentlemen, second week, madam. (laughs) Of course, he gives the first lecture, the phone rings off the hook saying, isn't he wonderful, isn't he amazing, best thing to hit Washington for 50 years. So it goes on. What sounded like an extraordinary verbal facility in the lecture theatre was actually anything but. Conversation, another matter. He could be repetitive. Like all of us, he came, as he got older, to rely a bit on set pieces that had entertained audiences in the past. I say, looking round the room anxiously. Uh, (laughs) Mostly, it was magic. The All Souls Fellowship came to an end in 1938, He was elected to a tutorial fellowship in philosophy at New College, but the war intervened. He found another metier, interpreting America to the British Foreign Office from a desk in Washington. The wartime dispatches, later published by Herbert Nicholas, less astonishing today than they were at the time. But you get a sense 
of how little the British establishment understood America, Americans, American politics, and American institutions by reading the third volume of Skidelsky's Terrific Life of Keynes. Misconceptions that would nowadays have a first-year undergraduate thrown out of a prelims class were entertained from top to bottom of the civil service. Back from the war, Berlin was not the young man who went to Washington. Before he came back to Oxford, he went to Russia for the first time since his family fled in 1922, discovered that almost all the family had been murdered in the war, and had the extraordinary meeting with Anna Akhmatova, the story of which is perhaps the best-known and most astonishing thing he ever wrote. His heart, unsurprisingly, was not in the tutorial grind. I won't tell you tales about that. They are too familiar to too many people. He returned to All Souls in 1950. He always said he was sacked by the austere bursar of New College, Eric York, who, said Isaiah, thought that three philosophers was one too many. But given that they were Berlin, Herbert Hart and Stuart Hampshire, this would have been a Philistine view even for New College. But the attractions of philosophy as then practised had obviously waned. The leading figure in post-world Oxford was John Austin, but although Berlin admired him, what Austin regarded as the task of serious philosophy, namely the very hard work of eliciting the fine distinctions that competent speakers can draw, for example, between in error and by mistake, was not what Berlin wanted to do. He always said that he turned to the history of ideas because he wanted to know more at the end of his life than at the beginning and thought philosophy didn't make progress, whereas the history of ideas did. But philosophy, as Austin practised it, was meant to make progress. It might turn into linguistics, it might turn into psychology. Austin was always fond of the analogy of philosophy throwing off subjects like physics as it made progress the aspiration was clearly to make progress in any event Berlin's emphasis on knowing more sat pretty awkwardly with another of his stock responses he often quoted the American philosopher C.I. Lewis who had asked rhetorically why we should suppose that the truth as and when we reached it, would be either exciting or interesting? It's a good question. Allied to the thought that the naked truth is in most areas quite enough to be going on with, it isn't really disparaging of truth. But spending your life collecting impeccably true, but rather boring, propositions doesn't sound very much like Berlin. The last thing you can say of the way Berlin tackled the history of ideas is that he played down excitement and human interest in favour of getting the footnotes right. Consider a marvellous decade. The Northcote lectures that introduced the English to Berlinsky and Herzen in the early 1950s. Tom Stoppard is a wonderful playwright, but the material for the coast of Utopia just leaps off the page of Berlin's lectures and onto the page of Stoppard's text. 
any half-awake but moderately literate teenager reading these at the end of the 1950s would rightly have been breathless. At all events, the yet-to-be-analysed break with philosophy having been made, we have the Berlin who becomes the Chichely Professor of Political Thought in 1957. One of whose lectures happened to be on Saint-Simon. I criticised mildly sometime in 1960 at the end of the lecture. I was a raw and very naive undergraduate and was bowled over by the response. I was dragged across the high street to lunch in All Souls and Isaiah talked non-stop for an hour and a half as though he and I had been embroiled with utopian socialists for the past 20 years and that my wholly ignorant responses were full of some deep, if possibly yet unanalyzed, wisdom. My tutors... No, it's right. My tutors complained that I had acquired verbal mannerisms that sat well with Isaiah's 51 years but were deeply ridiculous in the mouth of a 20-year-old. Somebody at lunch said, did I think they might have been right? Certainly, certainly, certainly. Half a century later, I have mostly confused memories of long afternoons on the lawn of all souls in what were supposed, I believe, to be Enfield classes for politics students. I was a second-year undergraduate. Somehow they seemed to turn into tea parties with Stuart Hampshire, Richard Walheim, Patrick Gardner and Berlin, and long conversations in which Daniel Bell's belief that all interesting political arguments were now at an end and that they had all been replaced by technical questions about how to manage a welfare state were contrasted with Hegel's account of the end of history. The kindly scepticism of those conversations would, I think, have saved Francis Fukuyama a great deal of embarrassment had he ever encountered them. Those, my undergraduate years, were when Berlin's inaugural lecture on two concepts of liberty was much discussed, much admired, roundly abused from left and right, much compared to Mill's essay on liberty, and universally regarded, for better or worse, as definitive of modern liberalism. Since Berlin shared with Mill a disposition to tinker with his work, two concepts soon came to exist in several incarnations. And all I think one can say about that is that modern, modern liberalism no doubt does so too. The later 1960s were a different kettle of fish. They weren't comfortable politically or intellectually. Berlin was unequivocally a Cold War liberal. The end of World War II, he was a familiar sort of social democrat, non-insurrectionary semi-socialist of the kind that Hugh Gates School's Labour Party appealed to. Deeply anti-totalitarian, deeply unutopian, but supportive of a state that could combine liberal democratic politics with humane arrangements for the general welfare, decent education, housing, health care. He was dismissive of Hayek's fears in the road to serfdom, 
and Zedzek, and although he suffered the disillusionment with labour politics that many people did in the 1960s, he never climbed on Mrs. Thatcher's bandwagon. Israel, in the early years, was the undertaking he utterly approved of. He deplored the terrorism of the Stern Gang, had no time then or later for Menachem Begin, but was devoted to the idea of an egalitarian, democratic, pluralist, secular, but distinctively Jewish state. Like others, he thought Stalin not much better than Hitler and said firmly that the horrors of the Soviet Union and other communist regimes, North Korea, China, the Eastern Bloc, were quite enough to discredit Marxian utopianism. But he wasn't a revanchist liberal, nor an ally of the American liberals who took Edmund Burke's letters on a regicide peace as a blueprint for rolling back Soviet tyranny. The Vietnam War made the common sense of the juste milieu much less easy to sustain. By 1962, the American hostility to Cuba seemed excessive to many people, and when the world came to the brink of disaster during the missile crisis, many of those who thought that there was nothing to be said for the Soviet Union, even under Khrushchev, nonetheless thought that the Americans were much the more likely to get us all incinerated. If we had known of Kurt LeMay's desire to launch a preemptive strike on the Soviet Union, let me do it, he said firmly, I can finish it in half an hour. We know where that leads. I think we would all have been a great deal more terrified even than we were. Vietnam, of course, added to anti-American sentiment, defoliating rainforests and burning children to death in support of unlovable dictators in South Vietnam didn't look like much of a strategy to win hearts and minds in the third world. Berlin was stuck. I say this gently, I say it sympathetically, but I say it. He was stuck. Most of his English friends were deeply opposed to the war. Many of his American friends were dubious, but other very old friends like Joe Alsop were not, and McGeorge Bundy was not only pro-war in general, but actually engaged in helping it along. And, of course, McGeorge Bundy's Ford Foundation was soon to be the Wolfson Foundation's partner in launching this college. Could one, by any amount of cajoling, nagging, get Berlin to come off the fence? No. Nor should one have expected him to get off the fence, nor do I really recriminate. So what did he do? What he did was write about Turgenev's fathers and sons. Not exactly the war effort, but certainly effort provoked by the war. Anyone who heard that Romani's lecture of 1970 will recall I look at my watch anxiously when I say this, will recall that he simply could not bring the lecture to an end. The last 20 minutes went round and round and round and round. And that's the last time I'll say that. 
The lecture was called Fathers and Children, but the subtitle, Turgenev and the Liberal Predicament, gave the game away. He could neither bring himself to say that the Cold War gung-ho liberals were right and the enrage young were just silly. I mean, quite a lot of them were, but that's another matter. Nor could he bring himself to say that the young were quite right and their elders had lost the plot. In a curious fashion, but one that many of us, I think, feel, he both wanted the young to be wrong and expected, and indeed partly wanted, them to think the worst of him. I mean, even now I tend to look at the undergraduates of New College and say worriedly, I would not like them to cause more trouble, but why don't they? There was a lot of that in Berlin's reactions. As we walked out of the lecture theatre, as the Sheldonian, Stuart Hampshire shook his head and murmured, Mortadella, Mortadella. Wherever you slice this story, it's always the same story. Even then I thought that was a bit unkind, but I admired Hampshire for his unequivocal hostility to the Vietnam War and still twitch a little about Berlin's equivocations. My take on the lecture, of course, was that this wasn't just the repetition of an old tale. It was genuine anguish. This is not an occasion to expose my ignorance on too many subjects by getting into an argument about the Berlin who admired Herzen and the Berlin who admired Turgenev. I content myself with saying that I wish he'd stuck with Herzen. Been keener on the barricades than on the opera. Whether it was the strain of being at odds with the students he so much liked, or whether it was simple boredom, I don't know. But he was very pleased to give up the chair and take over the institution that began life as Ifley College. He wasn't always more charitable about the people it was meant to cater for than he had been about the fellows of Nuffield 12 years before. But since his view of New College was that it had become not very much less boring than when H.A.L. Fisher described it as one vast mausoleum, I don't think any of us need complain about occasionally being on the wrong side of Isaiah's irritation with people being boring. Raising the funds that gave Ifley College its new name, as you all know, what he really wanted to call it was St. Isaac's, as he kept on saying, and engaging with Powell and Moyer on one of their most successful projects, that came absolutely naturally and gave much pleasure. Being the president of an established institution and I hope Hermione will now put her fingers firmly in her ears, being the president of an established institution has its good days and its less good days. What his forte was was charismatic leadership, even with the help of Michael Brock, ordinary management, less so. Colleagues he very much liked, students he liked even more, but all souls had not given him a lot of practice at sharing a dining hall with small children. At that he flinched, 
I was actually surprised because he and Aline had insisted that when Kate and I went to dinner, we should park our six-week-old daughter in her carry cot next to the dining table. Perhaps it's numbers. Now, how does this bear on my question? I'm not trying to go on till there's no more time and I can get off the hook I've impaled myself on. Now is the moment for those who don't want the argument to contemplate the Elysian fields and Bowra, Berlin and Sparrow on the professorship of poetry. Return to the astonishing lectures on Belinsky and Herzen and the wonderful introduction to Herzen's memoirs of 1848 from the other shore and begin with Dostoevsky's one polite appraisal of Herzen. Dostoevsky didn't like Herzen, didn't like aristocratic exiles and didn't like liberals. But Herzen had one astonishing talent. He wrote dialogues in which the character who represents Herzen is always on the verge of being defeated by his opponent. Dostoevsky said he'd put this thought to Herzen, who had answered, yes, but surely that is the point. The later critic who got Herzen right on all this was Bakhtin, whose emphasis on dialogue is now a central part of the critical repertory. The thought I offer you, and will defend for a few minutes, is that Berlin did not, or with the usual academic cowardice, I will modify that to he did not really abandon philosophy, nor did he, and in the same vein did not really, take up the history of ideas. He abandoned the terrain of logical positivism, abandoned the standard techniques of post-war Oxford philosophy. But he went on doing philosophy. The exploration of the attractiveness and repulsiveness of social and political ideas. And this activity was historical in the sense that social and political thinking is not like thinking in the natural sciences, does not aim at uncovering timeless truths about the functioning of a non-human world. It explores the contestable and partial and often both historically and geographically local truths about broadly competing answers to the question, how are we to live? What political arrangements can we put in place to secure a world in which we can live with each other? The proper mode of argument is not to seek what Tom Nagel memorably called the view from nowhere. The proper mode of argument is dialogical. Not that Berlin himself produced elaborate defences. Bernard Williams and Tom Nagel, in other contexts and for other purposes, illuminated what Berlin was up to and knew they were doing it. Bernard Williams once reacted to Sidwick's claim that the standpoint of ethics is the point of view of the universe by observing in the usual tart Bernard way that the universe doesn't have a point of view. If you want a point of view, it has to be ours. That's Berlin. 
As his remarks at the memorial gathering in Oxford attest, Williams had no doubt that he and Berlin were saying the same thing. Berlin had not abandoned philosophy for the history of ideas because he hadn't abandoned philosophy. Why does it matter? Consider this. Almost no work on the history of ideas written by somebody who historians would reckon to be a historian cites Berlin's views on Machiavelli, Hobbes, Mill, Rousseau, whomever. All political theorists do. So what is it that historians of ideas in the strict sense do that allows them to ignore it? And what did Berlin do that makes it impossible for political theorists to ignore it? Well, roughly and swiftly, history asks causal questions. From whom did a writer get his ideas? To whom did he succeed in transmitting them? Who paid him? Who were his friends and enemies? So, so highly contextual. What conditions allow some ideas easier to accept, other ideas harder? Allowing for marginal cases, historians don't try to persuade their readers that the ideas they discuss have much relevance to ourselves Ideas matter as causes and effects, not in their own right as ideas. In Berlin, they matter as ideas, and what makes him worth reading is that he wants readers to confront the ideas head on. In the 1950s, Berlin had become obsessed by Vico's concept of fantasia, the capacity that human beings have to understand other people from the inside, to understand actions as the outcome of thought, to understand thought as naturally resulting in action, to locate thought in systems of thought, in other words, an internalist, culturally sensitive, historical, historically sensitive approach to understanding other human beings. Berlin always contrasted this internalist dialogical approach with a scientific, or perhaps better, scientistic approach to history and culture. This wasn't hostility to science. Like Becker's heavenly city of the 18th century philosophers, Berlin always thought the vision of a scientific utopia owed more to religion than to anything you could decently call science. Commentators, including devoted admirers like John Gray, often thought Berlin's criticisms of scientific history and his enthusiasm for anti-Enlightenment writers meant that he had become an enemy of the Enlightenment. He always insisted he wasn't, and he got pretty indignant at the accusation. Rationalist and determinist and monistic theories were certainly something he attacked. But irrationalism, conservatism and mysticism were about as far from his repertoire as you can get. He was in many ways an empiricist, humian and sceptical, but emphatically in the Enlightenment camp. This is where Dostoevsky's comments on Herzen might usefully be recalled. He wrote about the critics of the Enlightenment not to abandon the camp of the Enlightenment but to know what could be said against it 
and how better to defend it. Herzen struggled with the critics of the ideals of 1848 not to abandon them in despair but to understand their weaknesses. We should stop hankering after utopia. We should not stop fighting for freedom and happiness. The critique of claustrophobic societies, whether ancien regime or modern over-administered societies, can't be given up. Now we can close in. We're historically situated, we are culturally local. If we live in a literate culture, we know about ancestors and contemporaries who are not ourselves. We know the contrasting ways they see or saw the world. We act as we do in the awareness that we might have thought and acted very differently. The old tag that all affirmation is negation is the heart of Berlin's pluralism. There are, of course, kinds of innocence about moral and political possibilities that other cultures might have enjoyed. We can't recapture them. And the search to recapture them is likely to drive us mad. The argument of the hedgehog and the fox, after all, is that Tolstoy tried so hard to convince himself that there was one great truth that it nearly drove him insane. Because the plurality of values is paradoxically the one great truth on which Berlin insisted, the dialogical mode of philosophizing was the only possible mode he could practice. Not that of the philosopher king contemplating the one, the true, the good and the beautiful, nor even that of Aristotle agreeing we should only look for as much certainty as the subject matter permits, but still thinking there's an underlying harmony. Berlin's view, if there didn't seem to be an underlying harmony, it was because there wasn't an underlying harmony. Berlin's position is what you might call deep humanism or perhaps deep culturalism. The world that matters is the world as we understand it. We don't need to ask, and we certainly cannot know, whether nature really provides us with a guide to the true, the good, and the beautiful. What we do know is what people have most minded about and why, or more guardedly, what they have said about what they most mind about and why. Because what most of us say about what we mind about is only a partial indicator of all the things we think, we need to place the explicit in context and we need to place it in the context of the personality. Some of us write glacially that are bubbling volcanoes within. Others write exuberantly that are masking deep gloom. Some write to evade the censor, others to exploit an audience's readiness to fall for meretricious arguments. You need the whole writer to have the whole argument. That's where we make the transition from what is he doing to why does it matter that he does it like this. If what's going on is not so much history of ideas in the wholly respectable sense as a kind of dramatic philosophical dialogue, 
what is the intellectual rationale of that mixture of biography, history and argument that characterises Berlin's work and makes his essays personal impressions. It would be wicked not to admit the possibility that there is no real rationale. One should always, I think, as a matter of decency, start with the negative hypothesis. If there's no real rationale, then, as some of Berlin's more savage critics said, what's left is political theory as an extension into the Elysian fields of high-table gossip. You'd never guess what Herder thought. And what you'd have would be absolutely nothing more than personal impressions. I find Machiavelli really rather engrossing. Oh, really? I say nothing against gossip. At least I'd better not. Think of John Aubrey's wonderful brief lives turned into Roy Dottress's amazing stage performance. And yet again, think of what Tom Stoppard does with A Marvellous Decade. But there's a letter to Jennifer Hart in which Berlin gets a bit close to saying what I would find dispiriting if I thought it was all there was to be said. He says, If I get Cole's professorship, which perhaps I would do, do I really want to lecture on political theory for years and years and years? I like intellectual history, like the history of ideas, like the personalities associated with ideas and the flavour they give to them. But political theory and philosophy in the proper sense, in the sense in which there is the delusion that there is a subject there with arguments for and against, as, say, Plamenatz or Herbert think of it, about that, I think, about that, I'm not so sure. If it was all the evidence one had, one might be a little worried. Against that, there's an immensely long letter a couple of years earlier, and this time to George Kennan, who'd written a long response to Berlin's essay on political ideas in the 20th century. What, of course, Berlin says absolutely firmly is that there is one central issue, and the central issue is the defence of the cornerstone of a civilised liberal society, and it's this. Individuals are ends in themselves. They're not means to some larger end outside themselves. Whether it is done by violence or manipulation, making people do what they would refuse to do and refuse in revulsion if they could reflect and decide autonomously, that is the greatest of all political crimes. This, I think, is the authentic voice of the anti-totalitarian liberalism of the 1940s and 50s. There's no suggestion here that political theory is a branch of the higher gossip. What there is, is the unequivocal claim that certain ways of thinking are deeply dangerous, destructive and dehumanising. Consider, one last time, a marvellous decade. These lectures didn't introduce Belinsky, Hertz and Agarioff and their contemporaries to the English for the very first time. John Stuart Mill, for instance, used to attend exiles' dinners where he would actually meet Hertz and Louis Blanc and Gary Baldy in the same place on the same evening. 
Francis Garnett translated my past and thoughts in the 1920s, and in the 1930s, E.H. Carr's wonderful multiple biography, The Romantic Exiles, brought Bakunin and others to a wider public than a few anarchists. The anarchists, of course, had always taken seriously Bakunin's complaint that Marx's utopia would not see the withering away of the state, but would be a bureaucratic nightmare run by professors of economics. Of course, it was worse than that. It turned out to be a bureaucratic nightmare run by murderers. Nonetheless, written when they were, written by whom they were, those lectures had a very deep purpose. Berlin had said to Kennan that he was susceptible to the romantic impulses of early 19th century Europe. And this was certainly true. It had a downside. The downside was a taste for operas that should have been played once and never revived. Instead of which, he used to get Francis Haskell to drive him all over North Italy looking for revivals of these appalling pieces. The upside of the romantic impulse is a strengthening and an enriching of the thought that an emphasis on the idea that each person is a member of the kingdom of ends and that is what we oppose to the manipulators and the bullies and the obsessive tidiers up. The thought is that Kant's own emphasis on obedience to the moral law as the be-all and end-all of human freedom just isn't enough. It's not expansive, it's not rich, it's not calculated to inspire passion rather than caution. The obsession, the Kantian obsession with moral rectitude leaves a gap and into the gap stream the romantics. Rational self-direction is all very well. But we need Goethean many-sidedness, we need Schiller's letters on the aesthetic education of mankind, we need von Humboldt on the limits of the state, and we need Mill on liberty. Whence Herzen's importance? Much as Herzen, reflecting on, on liberty in my past and thoughts, writes much less about the arguments of on liberty than about the place of Mill in liberal culture in Victorian England, writes more about Mill's sensibility. So the Herzen of those astonishing lectures is less an exemplar of a set of arguments than an exemplar of someone who felt the full force of his anti-utopianism, felt the full misery of the failure of the hopes of 1848, and refused to despair. When Herzen insists that we cannot tell the present generation that they are to be sad caryatids supporting the dancing floor of the future, we aren't asked, as a particularly dreary kind of utilitarian might be tempted to ask, well, how many sad caryatids would be a fair price to pay for a really smart ballroom? What we are asked to do is to share Herzen's revulsion. If it's neither philosophy at its most austere, nor the history of ideas at its most meticulous and footnote-ridden, it is, to my eye, 
a wonderful place to begin for anyone who wonders why it's worth taking ideas not just seriously, but taking them seriously for yourself. Um, you, you talked about Isaiah Berlin's obsession uh, with Vico's uh, concept of fantasia, and you described it as an internally, culturally sensitive approach to understanding other human beings. Um, I thought your lecture was a wonderfully um, eloquent demonstration of that kind of understanding. It was actually a form of dialogue. Uh, with Isaiah Berlin, which um, sort of did a, 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 an extraordinary vivid recapturing over half a century uh, of a mind uh, and a person. Um, uh, done, I thought, with the utmost seriousness, elegance, humanity, and depth. So we're very grateful to you. Thank you.